23rd, 1997, a new holiday was born for people that were irreligious. It protested the commercialism of Christmas, and it had several traditions, including a plain metal pole instead of a Christmas tree, a family dinner, and feats of strength. The holiday was known as Festivus. Yeah. And it was made popular by the character Frank Costanza on the sitcom Seinfeld. And one very important aspect of this celebration of Festivus is called the airing of grievances, which takes place immediately after the Festivus dinner has been served. Frank Costanza says, at the Festivus dinner, Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and you let them know all the ways that they have disappointed you over the last year. How many of them would be pretty excited about that, right? Each participant tells families and friends how every instance that they let each other down. And Frank Costanda continues, he says, Welcome newcomers. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about them. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, reads a lot like an airing of grievances between God and Israel. So much has happened up to this point, and God made Israel his people, and he made a covenant to protect them and care for them as long as they worshipped and obeyed him. But they turned their backs on him over and over and over again. Then the judges come, and they show Israel their sin, and they save them and help them be rescued when they repent. And then God would send prophets that said, thus saith the Lord. And eventually, God does allow them to have kings like other countries because they continue to ask and continue to ask. And that was a, a big deal because God was their true king. So all this culminated, all this turning away from God culminated with Israel being destroyed, the temple being destroyed, and the people being taken into captivity for 70 years as a consequence of their own sin. But God was still gracious, and he freed, uh, feed, uh, feed, freed, freed. he freed them from captivity again. And then they come back to their home country finally, and that's where we left off in the book of Haggai a couple weeks ago. But Haggai had a message from God, and for a short while the people listened, and they got back to work, and they rebuilt the second temple as they purified their hearts and actions. But 90 years after that, in 433 B.C., Malachi comes on the scene as a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was focused on rebuilding uh, the worship and the community of God's people, while Nehemiah was more strategic and focused on rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem in order to protect the people and the temple. But Malachi here is a little bit of a different type of book. It's basically six disputes between God and his people. Both sides airing grievances against one another. God letting people know where they had disappointed him and vice versa. So we're going to cover two disputes today. The name Malachi literally means my messenger. This is the, the last book in the Old Testament. After this book of the uh, Old Testament, there's 400 years of silence before we get to the Gospels. And these minor prophets are important to understand the scene which Jesus came onto. The people of Israel had had high hopes when they came back from 
uh, captivity. But poverty and injustice reign just like before the exile in Babylon. So welcome to the airing of grievances. Dispute number one. You can turn in your Bibles in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. You can look in the notes or on your phone. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This is what God says through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. This book starts off in a full sprint, right? They're left feeling like we have to catch up. Verse 1, God says, I have loved you and I have shown you I've loved you, but you question my love like I haven't proved it. Joyce Baldwin says God's love is particularly thought to be a uh, revelation first made in the New Testament, but this is far from the truth. It's implicit all the way from the beginning. God didn't just start loving people when Jesus came. But many times when the Bible talks about the descendants, it talks first about their patriarchs, right? So with Israel, it would be Jacob, and with uh, Edom... The Edomites, he, uh, the father of the Edomites was Esau, and they were brothers. But hundreds of years after these men lived, Israel and Edom became bitter enemies. And the Edomites went as far as siding with other countries that were attacking Israel. And Edom even ransacked Israel after their defeat. So that's not a great thing to do for people uh, that are supposed to be friends. So God judged Edom's sin. But God continued to bless his chosen people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. But the people of Israel were still questioning God's love. When God had given them everything and forgave them over and over and over, even when they failed, even when God did allow them to feel the results of their sin and be disciplined, he still brought them back home. But Malachi and Nehemiah and Ezra tell us about the state of the country during that time. The people weren't loving or they weren't fair and they weren't just. And sometimes when people aren't loving, we can question whether God is loving. But people aren't God. God is love. So God had made his love clear to them over and over and over again through the Red Sea and guiding them through the wilderness and feeding them when they were hungry, helping them with battles when they were outnumbered, defeating their enemies and providing wealth and prosperity during the reign of, of David and Solomon. But all they gave back for all God had done for them, all they gave back was idolatry and wickedness and taking advantage of each other so that they could get ahead. So this statement that the people of Israel tell back to God when he says, I have loved you, and they say, when were you loving? That's an obvious blame-shifting move by Israel, right? They know that they're in trouble, and they failed God, and they try and change the subject. Sometimes kids and teens can do this to you sometimes, right? They know they're in trouble, so they bring up some random thing from a long time ago that they've been holding on to in order to hurt you and distract you in an attempt to protect themselves. Come to think of it, adults do this too, right? The best defense is a good offense, right? I guess that's the thinking. And Israel knows that they have failed. God says, I have loved you. Why do you do this to me? And they scream back to him, when have you ever loved me? 
It doesn't matter if it's true. They think it might work, right? They try and manipulate God, but it doesn't work to manipulate God. And he says, you know I have loved you. I have shown you that I have loved you. Now back to the actual failures, which are yours. That brings us to dispute number two. See, the people were bringing polluted and apathetic sacrificial offerings. And the priests, who were the ones that were kind of in charge of this religious system, the priests are supposed to call people back to holiness, but they're not honoring God in their responsibilities. We see it in verse 6. O priests who despise my name, God's calling them out. But you say, how have we despised your name? He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. See, it's Israel that hasn't reciprocated the love. And they haven't given God the honor and the obedience that he deserves. Instead, the priests defile his name and pollute the altar. And they won't admit it. They give God their worst and expect him to be happy with what he gets. They were supposed to bring the best of the best of their livestock to offer to God. And they would bring a lamb as a physical representation that God owns it all. But instead of their best, they were bringing lame and blind and sick animals. Now, remember, the families and the priests would eat these edible parts of the sacrifices. They weren't just uh, wasting these animals. But see, these sacrifices were pictures and representations of the future perfect lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. So when they offered their worst... It was offensive to God. It was offensive to the Messiah. But they withheld their best so that they can make more money off of these uh, good animals and not have to give up their best. And they give God whatever is left over. He says there at the end, he says, present that to your governor. Will he uh, show you favor for doing that? Your, Your earthly leaders wouldn't even be happy with the gifts that you are bringing, but you expect the God of the universe to be happy with that? Have you ever known somebody that uh, just loves to cook for people? They just get so excited to make something good for people to enjoy that brings people together. Maybe it's like your grandmother, right, with the Thanksgiving dinner. She goes all out and she pours love into every dish, mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing and a golden brown turkey. You guys getting hungry yet? For many people, Thanksgiving is their favorite holiday. Josh will tell you that. It's his favorite holiday because it's just a simple family time. It's not commercialized at all. And people just love to to sit together with a meal that's been prepared and it's so special. But imagine this Thanksgiving, you show up to that person's house and you haven't eaten all day and you sit down to a meal of cold Taco Bell. There is nothing in the world that has a shorter shelf life than Taco Bell, right? If you, it just basically like self-destructs after five minutes and it just falls apart. It's disgusting. But you show up to this Thanksgiving meal and you would instantly know that something was wrong. What happened? 
This isn't what I was expecting. Why is this offering that's normally done with love and effort seem to be thrown together so half-heartedly? What is going on? How much better should an offering to the king of kings be? See, the point was not the animals. The point was that their hearts weren't given to him. And to them, God was not worth the sacrifice. God despises their apathetic worship so much that he tells them to shut the doors of the house of worship. See, the worst thing that can happen to a place of worship is not closing. The worst thing that we can do is offering up worship that is not worthy of the king of kings. He says that in verse 10. He says, oh, that there were among you one that would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Woe to a place of worship that leaves God feeling this way. Luke warm makes God sick. God deserves so much better from his people. God should be first. And we have to fight our flesh and our laziness and the world and the devil from trying to knock God off the top of our priorities. We need to make sure that the pursuit of money and worldly things don't taint our worship. Now, our worship doesn't change God. God never changes. And he will get the worship either way. If we don't give it, the Bible tells us that he would even make the rocks cry out in praise. But having no worship is better than worthless worship. Verse 11, God says, I'm going to get my praise either way. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God will get the glory he deserves. And it is an honor and a privilege for us to get to be a part of it. We have to bring him our best. So God goes on to rebuke the priests again, and they have led people astray, and they were doing so much, but it was useless and offensive to God. And they would feel the consequences of their sin. God calls them to repent. And this is the start of this airing of grievances. Now, God is no Frank Costanza, always angry for no reason, right? That's him. That's not God. No, God is holy, and he is awesome, and he is wonderful, and he is good. And when he has grievances, they're serious. God loves us, and he has proven that to us. Over and over and over again. And he deserves our whole heart. He deserves the first place. God's ideas and God's things need to be first and foremost in our lives. So let us never bring worthless worship. And if we have gotten bored or apathetic, let us repent and make things right. Because it's not him. It's us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Take a time and a beat.
in a time of prayer. I'm going to lead us in some prompts, some prayer prompts, and, and, but you jump off and pray in your own words. The band's uh, going to come as we pray. God, forgive me for believing that you are not absolutely loving. Forgive me for my ingratitude. God, forgive me for not giving you first place. God, forgive me for not bringing my best. God, you are worth the sacrifice of worship. You are worth my full surrender. God, help us to feel how big you are. God, help us to stand in awe of your majesty, your holiness, how good you are and how just you are. God, help us to have the proper view of you and the proper view of us. God, help us to spend time remembering just how awesome and wonderful you are. God, in a room like this, we could think of all the things that we're thankful for, God, and we would never stop listing things. How good you've been to us. God, you've never left us alone. You've never let us down. You are good. As we continue in this attitude of prayer and, and you continue to allow God deal with your heart and whatever's going on, whether it's a, a health situation or a financial situation or whatever you need to be praying about right now, I want to speak just for a moment to those that might not yet 
know that they have made God Lord of their lives and they haven't yet put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. See, the Bible says that we have a problem that is called sin. And sin is anything we think and say and do that breaks God's law. When God is a holy God and a just God, he has to be separate from those things. But he wasn't okay with that. He always had a plan way back from the beginning to make a way for you to get to him. And that bridge, that way, is Jesus Christ. All the way back 2,000 years ago, God was born in the flesh. And he walked this earth and he lived a perfect and a holy life. And he laid down the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. Jesus put his life down on the cross so that he might defeat sin and death in the grave forever. Then he rose again on the third day, bringing our salvation with him. And if you've not yet put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross as the foundation of your life, putting aside all your good works and everything that you've done and putting all your faith in the cross and the victory that was won there. You can do that today, right now, once and for all. The words aren't important. It's not a magic prayer. It is a genuine decision in your heart. Put your faith in him once and for all. You can call out to him with something like, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know because of my sin that I'm separated from you. God, forgive me. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you. I put my faith in what you did on the cross to save me. In your name I pray. That's you today. You made that choice. That's amazing. It's the most wonderful thing that you could ever do love for you to write that down on your connection card. I chose Jesus because I want to follow up with you. I want to talk to you. Let you know the next steps. Because this is the most amazing decision you could ever make.